This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Amen. Hey, while you're standing up, go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word if you have that before you, either in the pew there's a Bible or on your phone, tablet, or the one you brought with you. If you're at home, thank you for joining us. Go ahead and get a copy of God's Word there as well. For those who are guests, I'm David Tarkington. I'm the lead pastor here, and I thank uh, God for how he has orchestrated the service already. I know Thanksgiving was just this past week, and as I'm sitting there listening and preparing I'm thinking how much it's like a, a meal that we have come prepared to, to uh, celebrate together. Mike comes up and brings us and sets the table well as we pray together as the, the gathered people of God. Shelvin leading us in the choir and orchestra and praise band leading us in worship is like that next, uh, next order or next phase of the meal. And here we get to the, the main course, the Word of God. I'm thankful for that as we come together today. Now, I will say this, just, just because we're working through a book. We're working through 1 Timothy, and 1 Timothy is a book with a lot of, of things that you might be going, well, you know, I don't have anything to take home from this today. I, I, I think you're missing the point if that's how you're thinking, but, you know, you hear great music about, a, you know, many of you are going through difficulties and struggles, and, and, and I just need a word from the Lord today, and all the pain that I'm facing, this, that, and the other, and all of that is very real. I don't minimize that at all, but so the question is, why don't I preach a, a sermon based on this subject or based on that subject and this topic? Well, he, here's what the Lord is really kind of leading me through and leading us through as your pastors. A church, a local church that is rightly ordered and biblically sound and humbly obedient, standing firmly on the Word of God, showing the, the many crowds and the gathered masses that the very narrow way of hope and salvation through Christ, that church, this church, if we get that right, then we are the greatest gift besides Christ himself to the community that he has placed us. The church rightly being the church is God's plan. You need this. We need this. This is God's great gift. Today we read from 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. When I finish, as we are training you well, I will say this is the word of God and you will say something in unison. If you remember it, then you get five points. You will say thanks be to God. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy or for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. And then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the Word of God. Thank you. You may be seated as we work our way through this very important letter and this teaching from Paul, not just Paul's word, but the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write to the pastor of Ephesus, Timothy, here, this first letter we get. We once again come to a passage that we often always go to when the time comes within the local church for an ordination service for deacons. While it's been preached here before at First Baptist numerous times, and most recently this past spring when we had the privilege of ordaining Austin Libel to be a deacon serving here at our church, 
To ensure that we are covering the depth of the letter and not skipping passages and saying, well, we've already covered that, we go right back to 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13 today. However, this is not a carbon copy of the sermon I preached in April. Mike did a great job last week challenging us and expanding on Scripture about the role of the pastor, elder, overseer within the local body. The office of pastor, elder, overseer, shepherd, is one of the offices in the church defined by Scripture. And when we speak of offices in the church, we're not speaking of a building, we're not speaking of a place where there's a desk, obviously. We're speaking of the positions of leadership. Yet the New Testament actually has, in other passages, different leaders reference given to the local church that lie outside this short list given to Timothy. For instance, if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, under again the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as every word within the Scripture is inerrant and immutable, you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14, Paul writes this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. A listing there in Ephesians 4. But then you go to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. It says this. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, uh, uh, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Again, fullness for that would be a sermon on another day, but more offices mentioned. So I've spoken of the positions of apostles and prophets in previous sermons at different times, and while that position was authentic and real and needed in the early days of the church, the qualifications required to actually have permission to use such a title today doesn't exist. That's why I'm not the apostle, David Tarkington, nor am I your prophet. And to use those titles today is actually using them outside of biblical authority. As for the title evangelist, we still see men use the title evangelist today, and we have had at time those serving here in our own congregation, our own church, coming and preaching under that title. With that being said, it should be noted that the, these are titles, I know this is more like a classroom, but I think if we don't get this, we continue to live confused. So let's just get some clarity on some understanding of what is biblically accurate. These are titles of positional leadership. And do not fall under the offices of the local church. The reason that is, and one reason that is, is those positions then, as well as the position of evangelists now, that's a role that is not tied to a specific local congregation. For instance, an evangelist, uh, Billy Graham, for instance, who is a, uh, an evangelist, probably most widely known historically, at least in our nation, and most recently, had the title evangelist. He was not pastoring a local church, was not a shepherd of a local congregation, and served as an evangelist in many areas and many nations and crusades and conferences and all over the place and did not have an office in the local church. The apostles were those men, as we read in Scripture, the apostles that are mentioned. Then you have Paul, who is identified as an apostle as well. Men who had been called by God and also had been eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. That in and of itself will limit those today who wish to use the title, unless they're 2,000 years old and lived in Israel. So likely, not really apostles. 
The apostles were those who had been eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ, had been commissioned by Jesus Christ himself, and were given to the church as a foundational office of the church during its early years prior to the canonization of Scripture. So a foundational office no longer needed, no longer allowed. Prophets are not mentioned much at all in the era of the early church. Most references, other than what I read in Paul's accounts in the book of Acts, are, 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 are not even existent in the Scriptures, in the New Testament. So what was the function of the prophet? The prophet was to proclaim God's Word to his people, the mouthpiece of God, especially throughout the Old Testament, you see that. This was crucial in the early days of the church as believers did not have the privilege of a pastor, shepherd, overseer standing before them or sitting before them and saying, hey, all of you pull out your copy of the New Testament and let's read this passage together. For they did not have that as it had not yet been put together. They were living these words we're writing, reading today. Evangelist is only found that term three times in the New Testament. And most likely these New Testament evangelists were those who traveled with the prophets and traveled with the apostles and were focused on the proclamation of the good news so that lost people would hear clearly and be saved, not unlike the role evangelists have today. All of those are biblical roles. All of those are biblical positions. All of those are right and good, and many of those were for a season, all for the glory of God and for the good of the church, but not offices within the local body and not offices that are to be repeated today. There are two established offices in the New Testament church. They are identified in this letter to Timothy and affirmed elsewhere throughout the New Testament. And they are pastor, as has been spoken of last week. And if you weren't here for that sermon, it was one of the best sermons on that passage, and I told Mike this, that I have ever heard. So I would encourage you to go and listen to that on our podcast, download it on our website, download the, the, uh, the transcript. You can just read it, as well as the D group conversation starters there that are on our website. That role was explained well last week. So following God's lead to focus on the next portion of Scripture and going to the next office, the second office, that of deacon. Now, I have grown up a Southern Baptist. I have been a Baptist, as many of you know, since nine months before I was born. I didn't have a vote in that. That's just how it was. My dad was military. We moved around when I was young until till I ended up in high school and we kind of settled in, in Texas and I stayed there all the way through college and seminary. But in moving from church to church and place to place, I found most, most often, whether it's Alaska, Alabama, Ohio, or Mississippi, or any other place that we were living at the time, when we found a local Southern Baptist church, we joined that local Baptist church, and just every one of those churches, they were, they were like carbon copies of the other ones. They had the same hymnals, same bulletins, same offices, pastors and deacons. Now, my dad serves as a deacon now. He has served as a deacon in most every church we have been members of when I was a kid. I do remember when he was ordained. That was a special time for him and for our family. And I also remember that he was called to serve as a deacon whenever he was transferred and joined another church and was there for a season. And they would often put him in that position again. But as a kid, I had a kid's perspective on churchy stuff. Anybody, anybody understand what I mean by that? Anybody not a kid that still has that same perspective. Okay. I just didn't know a lot of things, and I presumed a lot of things, and I wrote my own story in my own head about the way things were at certain times. So when, if you were to ask me as a kid what a deacon was, I would have said it's, uh, it's a group of old guys that hand out the Lord's Supper. And then I would have stopped because I wouldn't have known anything other than that. 
And then I, my dad became a deacon. I said, it's a group of old guys. My dad was really old. He was probably like 35. So he's ancient. It's a group of old guys that hand out the Lord's Supper elements and have to meet once a month. They're the three biblical requirements, apparently, from a kid's perspective. I didn't know much else. I grew up and into my teenage years and young adulthood. I, I paid more attention, believe it or not, to what was going on within the church. And I knew that there was this annual process that tended to happen in most every church we were part of. It was that deacon nomination voting time. And the autonomy of every church, as, a, as alike as each church was, they were different in how they did that. But for the most part, they were pretty similar. So I started paying attention. In a number of the churches, church members would receive a ballot during the monthly business meeting. They would get it prior to that, and they would have the opportunity to vote. And I remember seeing those ballots. One of them had about 80 names on it. The church had, by their practice, printed a list of every man in the church membership age 18 and over, and then gave that to church members so they would uh, mark the chads on it, right, and check them off and pick 12. They would always, I remember we'd always pick 12 because that's a biblical number and it was more than three. So pick 12 men who are faithful out of a list of 80. Now the church only ran 115. So what does that tell you? Well, I can tell you, honestly, I mean, even, even as a junior high kid, I'm going, we don't have 80 men in the church. Who are these guys? And why are we voting on them? But I was only a kid. What did I know? But I knew something wasn't quite right because I would talk to my parents about who these people are, and they would try to describe some of them, but then they were at a loss for a number of them as well. And then we discovered, well, some of these guys, are, they, they, they haven't been in years. They're on the books as members, but they haven't been in years. I like, likely some had already died, and we just didn't know it. Didn't have the internet to Google the obituaries. And some only showed up during softball season because it's very Baptist to say, if you want to play on our softball team, you've got to attend church at least once a month. Amen? That's how it used to be. That's how you get the ringer. Come on. A bunch of Baptists can't play softball. You find the one guy hits a home run every time he comes up. Come to church once a month. You can be on the team. And now you're nominated as a deacon. What a blessing. Baptist life. But here's what I've discovered over time because... Each of these churches had a church constitution, and in many of church constitutions, there were requirements based on how many deacons you had to have serving based on how many members you had in the church. Now, that's not biblical, but it had been passed along, and so there was this rush to, we got to find 10 guys, got to find eight guys, three guys are rotating off, and this, this real, almost a, a false sense of stress developed within the body to find men who could fog a mirror and were men so we can make them deacons. In addition to the men truthfully, honestly, biblically called to be in that role. I think it was a disservice to the real deacons. And I think it was a disservice to the church. And it was likely a disservice and more, mo mostly a testimony to a really bad membership process that the church had at the time. But I learned a lot over the years and I'm still learning a lot because I still, the more I learn, the more I don't know. I have learned that there are godly men and have been godly men in every church I've been a member of who have been set apart and called to serve as deacons. I remember some who, when my dad was working a couple of jobs, spent some time to pour into me. I remember one senior adult deacon in our church 
when my dad was working a lot and, and, uh, and, and, and we were at church all the time. My mom was the volunteer youth director at the time and this guy would take me fishing and take me golfing. Now, I, 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 I'm terrible at both. Maybe if I combined it, I'd do better because when I golf, I spend more time in the water. But nonetheless, this guy spent hours not teaching me Bible stories, but showing me biblical, godly manhood, service, by just pouring into the life with me and some other guys that we would spend that time with. You know, those were good days. I look now and think if a guy were to try that nowadays, he'd probably be, you know, oh my gosh, how many background checks? We're not going to trust you with our kids and you need 25 people to make it safe. And I get it because of some really bad apples that have shown up over the years. But I learned much. I've learned there are godly men in churches throughout the world who have been called to, by God, affirmed by their local church and serving faithfully with integrity within the body. And there are men within First Baptist Church who have done so for years. I'm going to ask if, and I know guys are on vacation and some are serving in preschool right now and some are walking around in ERT, but if you're an active deacon serving at First Baptist right now, I'm going to ask you to stand. And I don't want anybody to give them applause because that's not why we're having them stand. But I want you guys to stand for just a moment. I want to, I want to see who these guys are. And there are some upstairs as well. Thank you. So listen, these are men called by God, affirmed by the church, set apart for service. Now you can give God a hand for those he has called out. And I thank God for that, that God has done that. So men, go ahead and be seated if you haven't been. There are many men like that in our own church, and, and I say that because there's confusion even among the, the membership of First Baptist Orange Park, because if I ask random church members, hey, can you name five deacons? They don't necessarily know, uh, but they may pick some guy they know, and eh, he's not a deacon, not even a member. So it's just, they're just picking people, right? I want you to know who these men are, and some of you know them because they serve you, and they've shown up when you're in great need, and they call you when you're in great need, and they fulfilled the role and are continuing to fulfill that role. And I am thankful for this. Many men that we are blessed to have serve. Now over the years in the churches I've served in, the churches I've been a part of, I've also learned some other truths. That there are sometimes guys who are called deacons wear the title but likely never should have been ordained, never should have been set apart, and oh my goodness, never should have been voted in. That's just reality. Some of those guys never should have been voted in because actually they really didn't qualify biblically. And some of them, after they were voted in, by intention, disqualified themselves. And some have been so overly negative. They're so mean-spirited. They're, they're, they're complainers. They complain about everything. And they are actually divisive. A divisive deacon is an oxymoron. A complaining deacon is an oxymoron. A deacon that wants notoriety is an oxymoron. And when the church selects the wrong men to serve, the church pays. And in some cases, I've learned over the years, men who are disqualified, should never been served, should be disciplined by the church. Some should be sent out of the church for the hope that they would come back well. Now you're going, who are you talking about? None of your business. But I'm talking about guys in churches all around the world who sought a title but didn't deserve it or deserved it at one point but don't now. This is tragic, but who's to blame? 
the church, and often the pastors. For there is often a presumption that is held regarding church polity that is not valid. Now see, a, a membership class can explain our church polity, our ordinances, and our understanding of Scripture. And while church members who go through a membership class will get it at least for a season, here's what I've noticed, and I've noticed in my own life. We'll affirm it, we'll believe it, we'll say it's right. But if we're not in the Word continually, if we're not in the fellowship regularly, if we're not faithful to the family, it's amazing how much we forget and presume and ignore. So what is this office of deacon that Paul writes of? Well, the deacon is a gift. That's the first thing. If we don't get that, then everything else is just a positional thing. We're trying to work with a job description. The deacon is a gift from God to the body. It's a position of deacon not created by man. Man did not create the position to give someone a title, but was created by God as a gift to the church as the need arose. So when in God's timing he saw fit to reveal the position's need, he did so. Acts chapter 6 First seven verses. In those days, the disciples were increasing in number, meaning many people getting saved. A complaint, go figure. The early church is barely, uh, uh, you know, gosh, six chapters old. And it only took six chapters to complain. That's amazing. A complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That hurts people's feelings sometimes to read that, but let's move on. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The story gets bigger and deeper and most incredible. We've just spent months in Acts, so you can go back and reread that. But I believe this is the first instance of men who would be called deacons being set apart in the church. Seven men were called out and set apart to ensure that widows were cared for. That widows in Jerusalem's church had enough food. Why were they needed? Because the apostles at the time, the leaders of the church, soon to be uh, replaced by the office, not, uh, not equal to it, but the office of pastor and shepherd to the local body, but the apostles were being asked to manage disputes and not unlike Moses in the Old Testament who was overwhelmed with the trials and the difficulties among the people trying to judge all the disputes himself, the apostles were being distracted from the most important by doing another important thing, but not the most important thing. And here's the thing. If you do important things to, but ignore the most important thing, then the things that you are doing are totally unimportant eventually anyway. So they, in their distraction, said there's a better way. Paul stated prior to this letter, then Timothy, to the pastor there, he said in chapter 1, verse 3, 
We read this a few weeks back. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Then later on in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So what is stated by Paul in the book of 1 Timothy affirms the writing of, the, of, of Luke to, in the Acts of the Apostles there when the church called out these seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, to serve within the body to ensure that this unity among the family not gain a foothold. The men serve the practical needs of the widows and the church members so that the more important things could continue to be done. There are needs within a local body. There are practical needs. Amen? Hallelujah? It's right. Feast of plenty is a practical need. But feast of plenty is not something we do every day. There are more important things than feeding people turkey on Thanksgiving, though that is great and wonderful and good. There are more important things than the practical ministry of church members within the body. That, that really just seems so odd. It offends some who have so drifted away from the understanding of a biblical worldview with a doctrinal foundation on the inerrant word because now what I'm saying is apparently prayer and the proclamation of the word and the ministry of the word is more important than the care of widows and those with needs. I just make sure if you think that's what I'm saying, you're absolutely right. That's what I'm saying. I don't know if I like that. This is not a business meeting and we're not voting. This is biblical statements of truth. The apostles were being distracted by a good thing they had to do, but by doing a good thing, the godly thing that they were called to do was being left undone. So what's better, to have everybody in the church feel good about each other and have a good meal? but a really heretical, poorly planned, and just uh, no teaching of the truth of the Word of God whatsoever? Or to have the truth of the Word of God declared boldly and truthfully and strongly and have the men that God's called raise up, ri risen up within the church to serve the very practical needs? It's not an either or, it's a both and. But there are positional roles. They're not unimportant. If they were unimportant needs, then Acts 6 wouldn't exist. If they were unimportant needs, we wouldn't hear other passages about taking care of orphans and widows. They are important needs. But the affirmation and the statement in Luke and in Paul's letter and in other places throughout the New Testament is that the proclamation and the preparation by those that have been called by God to declare the truth must be paramount. This does not set up the celebrity preacher to say, I don't want to do anything but just get paid by a plane, get a big house and a nice Cadillac and preach every so often. That's not biblical reality either. I feel very responsible for what you believe about God. You need to understand, I feel very responsible for what you know about Jesus Christ. I know you can make up your own decisions. I get that. I know some of you are wrong. And I know some of you struggle with that, and you're trying to figure out how, as you're deconstructing your faith, some of you have been raised in the church, and you're waiting until you get old enough to get out. I get it. I get it. I got one of those in my own family. But I feel heavily responsible to ensure that what you hear from this table here on the Lord's Day regularly is unequivocally not my words, but God's. 
that you will understand if you get offended, you're not offended by what I say, but you're offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Spirit is seeking to transform your understanding of him. That's the challenge. So when I say the most important is prayer and proclamation, it's not because that's the easy way out. That's the more difficult way out. It's easier to become a church in name only that does nothing but do uh, community service and food kitchens. That's easier. But when you do that all in, often is what aban- what's abandoned is the most important. Deacons are the gift of God to his church. The local church in Ephesus had two offices. The local church in Orange Park has two offices, pastor and deacon. Both are gifts to the church by God, and both are not prideful positions. So the deacon is a gift, but the deacon is also a servant to the church. This great gift of of deacon is a, as I said to one of the guys many years ago, he's no longer with us. I mean, he's in heaven, so he's no longer with us here. He was nominated to be a deacon. I said, you have been nominated with a high calling to a very low position. Are you prepared for that? He wasn't. But I'm glad we had the conversation. Because he understood then that at that moment he wasn't ready. It is a high calling to a low position. Not every man in the church can be a deacon. Not every man can remain a deacon. Not every man is called a deacon. Not every man is owed the opportunity to become a deacon simply because he fulfills a few criteria. The deacon is the ultimate servant of the Lord within the body. A deacon in a church on the other side of town. I hope you get this because this is a real fuzzy matter for churches because we trust other churches deacon the same way we deacon and they don't. I mean, they may read the same Bible, but they interpret it differently. They may have different qualifications. And so some guys become deacons here after they've been deacon at some Baptist church somewhere else. And there's this presumption, well, I'm already a deacon. I'm already ordained. I ought to be a deacon. I'm like, well, you you may qualify there, but you may not qualify here. Well, well, a deacon at a church on the other side of town has no authority in this body. You know that, right? It is a family position. That doesn't mean he's not a brother. Doesn't mean he's not a godly man. Doesn't mean he's not a man of integrity. It just means he's serving in that family and hasn't been called to serve in this family. And until God so desires to bring people on and take, move people around, that's how it has to be understood. It is a familial role. Most here at First Baptist Church now understand that deacons are not pastors, understanding that deacons are not elders, that deacons are not overseers. But I will dare say that if you just do a little little survey among Southern Baptists around the country, you'll discover that that's not very clear in most churches, especially the smaller the church gets. In many churches, they drift towards these functions. In some churches, the deacon body becomes a board of directors, the deacon board, they say. In some churches, the deacon body become business managers, report gatherers, financial approvers, grounds crew, or any other baptized business position. But in each of those cases, that 
additional role is unbiblical because it's not defined in Scripture. I'm not saying it's wrong. What if someone has to mow the yard? Well, this deacon's going to do it, but he doesn't do it because it's a role of the deacons. He does it because he wants to serve the Lord and the lawn needs mowed. He's not, it is not a business position. And when a local body allows their deacon body to fill the roles that the Bible has not laid out for them, the local body needs to repent for ignoring Scripture and get it right. In the past few decades, of leadership has become a genre within books. And back when we had, you remember, we used to have these things, bookstores. Remember those? Brick and mortar, you can go in and look, there are books on shelves. The ones that still exist are just really nice coffee shops with a few books. But anyway, it's hard to do this on Amazon, but you can go into genres, right? You know, they got the romance, you got the history, and you can go to leadership. Leadership books are all over the place. And I'm not anti-leadership books. I got a whole shelf full of leadership books, but I'm telling you, over the past few decades, what we do, we do this with everything. We baptize genres of literature and make them Christian. And so now we have Christian leadership books, which again, isn't sinful. It's just weird when you think about it. Look here. We have books like Lead Like Jesus. You know how he led, right? He died. No one wants to read that chapter. Or we've come up with this phrase called servant leaders. Servant leaders. I do these little air quotes because that means, I think it's a dumb phrase, servant leaders. I was doing a deacon conference uh, down in South Florida earlier this year, and I talked about this, and, and it was almost like the scales fell off the eyes of all the men in the room. And they, I never thought of this. I said, listen, here's, here's what's happening. <laughs> servant leadership. Can I, let me just encourage us to stop watering down the very thing Christ has called us to do and to be by adding modern, marketable business terminology to it so that we may feel better about our calling. I want to be a servant leader. Hmm. God has not called our deacons or any deacons or our pastors or any of us, for that matter, to be servant leaders. Your calling is not to be a servant leader. Your calling, my calling, the deacon's calling is to be servants, period. We like to add leader to it because servant just sounds so subservient. But leader, I can get behind that. Everybody wants to be a leader. To add leader to the term servant sucks everything from the word servant is to be to make it more palatable to an American culture that thrives on positional authority and celebrity. The men of Acts were called to serve. You say, well, weren't they leaders? Absolutely. But they didn't need a name tag that said so. They were leaders not because they sought to lead. They were leaders because they sought to serve. Now, the early church had some self-proclaimed leaders that popped up. Uh, Mike read about this. Uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander are good examples, but not examples to follow. Those were the guys kicked out of the church. The deacon is a servant to the church. And lastly, the deacon is one who unites the church. See, the early church was already at risk of dissolving. It was already fracturing. Widows and family members of widows were already yelling at each other. There were meetings beside meetings. There was the meeting of the church where everybody acted like they liked each other. Then there was the meeting that took place in the parking lot near the camels where they all just kind of gathered and complained. The early church was fracturing. This has been the sin nature of every human being since Eden. And our enemy fuels it. 
Disunity is easy. Anybody here have a problem griping? Anybody here have to work yourself up to become a griping? Griping is easy. I can gripe about everything. There are Florida fans right now griping about the last call of that game. There's one Ohio State fan in the room that doesn't even want to be identified. So, I mean, it's just, we gripe about it. It doesn't take much. Frowns are plentiful and hurt feelings are normal. And this is how humanity has been and continues to be. So the work of the deacon, this great gift of God to the local church, this gift of servitude to the local body has a job to do. And the job is to work for the unity in Christ among the brethren. That's why I said a griping, complaining, frowning, angry, negative all the time deacon needs to be de-deaked because he's disqualified himself and has no place in the room. He has a place to be. It's at the altar on his knees seeking forgiveness through the repentance of not being who God has called him to be. And that's true for each and every one of us. God gave his church a great gift. The gift of godly deacons help the pastors lead and help members to grow and fulfills the very practical needs as they arise. The gift of the deacon helps keep the forgotten members, uh, members remembered. Some of you feel forgotten. Some online today haven't, the pastor hasn't called me. I'm not calling you likely. Just so you know, I have a hard enough time remembering your name. If I call and visit every church member, let's just do every attender. If I just did one a week, how many years is that? That's not offering you God's best. So God raises up men full of good repute, men of integrity, called by him to serve you. It's not my desire to avoid. It's just a practical reality that I'm one guy. The deacons are clearly called, clearly commissioned, clearly caring and compassionate. And I'm thankful for them. The qualifications in Paul's letter that he writes to Timothy has no expiration date and thus still remains. So I ask that you pray for the men who have been set apart by you and by God himself. That they will remain qualified and compassionate and commissioned and called to this low office with a very high calling. To God be the glory. Let's pray together. Father, as we close this time together of worship today, we know that it's a very direct message to a very specific group of people, and many may be saying how it doesn't apply to them. But Lord, as I read this, I cannot help but re realize that regardless of the office, the position, or the place within the church, each and every one of us are called to be servants of each other, servants to you, faithful in how we walk, how we talk, how we live, and unifiers in Christ. So, Lord, I pray for First Baptist Church of Orange Park as we look to next Sunday's message when we talk about what it means to really love your church. Help us to love where we live, but help us to love the church you've called us to be part of, to love like you loved. And for the men and the women in our fellowship,
fellowship here today, men, women, boys, and girls, many who have been in church for a long time. Bring us clarity into how your church must be so that we may be faithful together to serve you well. For those in the room that have yet to say yes to you, Holy Spirit, you may be, I'm confident you're drawing someone to yourself even now. Clearly, clearly call to you for salvation. And through the repentance of sin and the surrender to you as sovereign Lord, Lord, we see transformation take place. For those working through that, struggling through that, questioning that even now, I pray that you will give them the courage to to come see one of our pastors or deacons here this morning to have more of a conversation about what it means to walk with you, to know you. And Lord, if you've convicted us, your spirit has convicted us today in attitudes and actions that maybe you just are not God-honoring, Lord, I pray that we as, as your church collectively will repent of that, but individually we'll bring it before you and let it be forgiven so that it's not held against us. I pray this in Jesus' most holy name. Thank you.